I maintain that if Donald Trump had a thing for black women and had 19 black women accused him of sexual assault, the Women's March would not have happened after he became president. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black Hand, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm Jonathan. And I'm April. And we're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On this episode, we're excited to talk to Tahid Chappelle. Uh, Tahid works for the Philadelphia Inquirer and is an expert on cannabis and the medical cannabis industry in Philadelphia. But before we get to all that, April, what's on your mind? Today, I'd like to talk about white feminism. It's something that is on my mind a lot because um, it's one of the issues that we see a lot in the media um, and in pop culture, but we often don't see it for what it is. It's often guised as feminism, and I think it'll be a it's it'll be good for us to sort of unpack um, what white feminism is, what it looks like, um, and how we can fight it. So there's a lot to unpack here. And actually, when I was thinking about this, Jonathan, I'd be interested to hear your perspective. What, yeah, what, what would you say is the goal of a conversation like this? What do you, what do you think? About white feminism? Yeah, as a black man. Oh, man. Um, what are the big things to sort of unpack here? And, and what would be... Yeah. What would be the what would be the goal? What do we want to see instead of what we are seeing? I would like to see acknowledgement that just making a big deal about and 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 bringing and bringing um rightfully attention and um media to issues that just affect white women is not feminism. Um, And so people who do that, just that, should not call themselves feminists. Um, And I'd like a conversation about white feminism to give examples of people who have done that in the past, and I'd like for people who listen to this podcast to hear these examples of times where they've been in an uproar about a woman's issue, something that they consider a women's issue, and to think back on the times where they've the things they become advocates for and the things that they have raised their voices and advanced their causes about and see how many times it was a black or brown woman that was implicated in that issue or an issue that just affects black and brown women and not white women. There are some issues that affect just certain races of women. Unless feminists are just as gung-ho about things that affect women who are not them as they are about things that affect women who can relate to whom they can relate, i.e. white women, they shouldn't be calling themselves feminists at all, I don't think. White feminism, that is, women who are white, who claim to be feminists but only really care about white women's issues or issues as they relate to white women, aren't ever about helping all women. They're not about being fulsome in their... um, protection and advocacy and in there you know it's about they would never say this but it's about just people who they can relate to and who look like them and so white women should be all over tammy lauren like up her ass 24 7 shutting her the hell down and they're not 
Right. You know, like, um, that is. I'm just so sick of, it seems so obvious when you're looking, when you're like from the outside or yeah, from the outside looking in at people, how can you not see that you're only advocating for people like you? So that, the reason you can't, I would think, I, my answer to that is the reason you can't understand that, I can't understand it either, but. It's because we're biracial. It's because we're not white. Yeah. That's why we can't understand that. Because that is, I don't know what it would be like to. Have the whole world be about you. Right. Everything in life is centered around you. And no, and and not only that, is that you literally don't see the things if they aren't about you. Right. They don't, it doesn't even register to them as issues. So you and I were talking about earlier the issues that have like affected hundreds of black and brown women or even big time headline issues that have like, you know, when women are, even when black women go missing, when black women are abused, when black... When whole ho- schools of black women are are kidnapped. Children, girls. Yeah. Um, By terrorist kid- groups. Right. right. In, what, that was Nigeria? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that... That should be, every feminist should be all over that. Like all, doing everything they can in their power to make sure that the world knows about this and that we should be doing everything we can do to solve it. I have very outspoken friends who are women, outspoken feminist friends who are women and they're white. And it's just radio silence when these issues come out. And they will look back on it now and say, like, oh, they just didn't hear about it or they didn't, you know, right. they can't believe they missed that or right. they can't believe that, you know. Well, that's a di- whole nother. And whole it's like, right, you're only plugged di- into to outlets that are reporting on the things that well, you like. And, so like, it's just, like, you didn't 20 miss minutes of news. Right. Because, like, the whole world doesn't care about right. those right. Exactly yeah. right. So it is also not covered right. as much. So but you it probably also, did But you didn't miss that because, sale at right. such and such, or you didn't miss that, and that sounded sexist because women like shopping. Fine, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I love shopping. <laughs> so, like, you shop way more than I do. I so. shop way more than you, yeah. yeah. No, but, but what I'm saying is that, like, there are smaller things that did come to your attention because right. you're interested in them. Right. And you are connected to those outlets and those things. And if that, you yeah. call yourself a feminist, you should be looking for those things. Right, right, exactly. Like they don't have don't make them come to you. Right, right. It didn't come through your news feed. You should be searching for the injustices around the world that are continuing to happen to women um that at the hands of men um and it shouldn't matter what race those women are or what country they're or continent they're on. Um or what country they're in. And it, yeah, it just it is uh it is one of the things that grinds my gears the most within the sort of social justice warrior realm because it is, and we haven't really defined white feminism yet. So white feminism, yeah. as I see it, is often, it's women and men, um, but often women who are outspoken in their feminism, who are white, who are only outspoken about issues that relate or pertain to white women. Um, whereas not just women, which is what the definition of feminism is. Um, and so that is one of the things that grinds my gears the most, which is in, within the world of social justice warriors, et cetera, et cetera, where we find ourselves in this podcast is that there are people who are, I know they're outspoken and I know they like Mm -hmm. get into it with people when like, you know, um, Something, some, some horrible, you know, when Kesha is being held oh hostage God. by her, 
um, by her record label, but and and in the you know and the person the manager or one of the I forget who it was one of the managers like Skipper or something or one of the yeah I, name. I forget his name and don't even really care to say it actually <laughs> was being abusive and being you know like yeah and and white women and white feminists right were up in arms right. about that and we're like you and know and it's like that, and you like, should be but like but also like and then y'all don't care about she, yeah. but then it's a whole thing for her now Kesha has the platform at the next music awards right she gets to perform badly because she's not talented (laughs) and she gets to bring on a bunch of other awesome women on the stage and it's all about her though it's like Kesha's journey through this which she should have a platform right to speak about her her the horrible things she had to deal with they're terrible Right. right but like she's not the only one right and she had this whole like the whole award show is basically about her Right. And no one would shut up about right. it. Because that was right as, was that right as Me Too was Me happening? Too was yeah. the movement was sort of starting? Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's like, yeah. And you know who's another sort of culprit of this who has sort of used, it seems, used um, things that have happened to her, bad things that have happened to her as a sort of part of her brand is Taylor Swift. Oh my um, God. Who is, right, I know. I, Why would you even say her name? I know, I just, I, part of me didn't want to bring it up. We're going to beep this out. I know, we're going <laughs> to censor her. Um, because she is, you've seen her interactions with Nicki Minaj, you've seen her interactions with other women who are not white, and it's just so clear that her whole worldview is centered on her and centered right. on women that look like her with her problems. Um, and that is just, that is, that's the luxury that you get to have when you are a white feminist. You get to pick the thing that is, it's selfish. You pick the thing that is just, yeah. that you can relate to. She's made a whole career about being a victim. Who, Tay-Tay? Yeah. Yeah, well, that started with, con- yeah. And, so- and <laughs> at, a victim at the, you know, at the hands of a black man. I was going to say, like that, ruined and that started her, at Kanye. made her famous. That's You're welcome. Started, right, right. That started with Kanye, and that is, and that's a whole sort of something that we should talk about. Like, you know, the history of women's rights and feminism generally look back on the white women who, uh, many of the white women who were leaders of those, of those, movements um were not looking to they were not looking to promote and advance everyone's civil rights they were looking for white to promote and advance white women's civil rights and think a a lot of the time a lot were but a lot were not um and you think about the laws literal laws that were like on the books back in the you know back in the early you know i'm thinking from up until and, and even just past the civil rights movement of the 1960s, yeah. you know, laws that were on the books where you were black, that were, that were, that were designed to protect white women right. from black men. Right. Um, and, you know, you think of Emmett Till, who was a boy, a, white, a black boy, his crime, the thing that like was an actual social, and maybe even at the time, I don't know if it was still on the books as a, an actual crime, but, you know, is an actual infraction is interacting with, whistling at or saying hello to or flirting right. with or whatever yeah. a white woman a boy though a boy right role, a child right. well that is I mean yeah boys are black, black boys are often taken as, as yeah. <laughs> right um which we see that today as um yeah. you know, examples abound but um so that looking at things through that whole context of like all right so there's a whole 
there were whole areas of the law and society that were dedicated to like insulating white women right. from the horrors, particularly from of, the horrors of black men. Of black men, yeah. and so. Um, I mean, and even when we that look is, at so that makes all I have to say that makes that makes Taylor Swift and Kanye's oh, yes. interaction <laughs> very Kanye's an asshole. Like he jumped sure, on stage yeah. and snatched the mic from someone during a right. an acceptance speech. Did he Beyonce lie? Though? Did did right, he lie? Right, <laughs> point out the lie. When he had like, the mic, was he lying? Right. Did Beyonce not make one of the best videos of all time, like, or did she? Like, you're right, right. So, so it's inappropriate to do that at that time. Fine, but like, and like of facts. course Beyonce, the gem that she is, like invites. Taylor back <laughs> on stage. But like <laughs> that whole situation just made me yeah, so angry. Yeah, yeah. I was cheering for Kanye yeah. as he did this. Same. It's just so tiring to hear white women on stage speaking as if they're speaking for all women when in fact they're doing damage to black women as they lift themselves up. So it's like Taylor, you don't give two shits about black women. And seeing them like, succeed in the world. don't. Like, you don't. That's not really her fan base. Right. She probably doesn't have any black friends. You don't ever speak up for us. You don't ever do anything for us. So I I just it's don't. Hard to think of her as a, yeah, So just say that. No, of course she's not going to say that. But she that's not going to keep her from calling herself a feminist. Exactly. And that's what white feminism is. And that's is. the problem. That's exactly what Right, your little is. squad. Right. Like. I, what does she call her squad? Like, there's like the. Doesn't be like the Beyonce is like the beehive. No, right? those are her fans. Taylor has like a friendship oh. squad where like Katy Perry was kicked out and like <laughs> people are. It's like I love your white coat. I hate you. Yeah. Your white, yeah, your your white feminist. It's just voice. so annoying. Yeah. So so I've struggled with this a lot as a black man because I've seen, especially within the Me Too movement, I've seen a lot of white women, rightfully so. Speaking on on things that have happened to them, into speaking on things that have happened to them in the past that have been horrific. That uh, that the thing they do have in common is that men have done this to mm-hmm. them. Men are the like you're the, the worst. We're the worst. Yeah, yeah, like that's that's so. that's fair. Um, but like, and me seeing the sort of acclaim that not not acclaim, but the sort of notoriety that a lot of these, especially celebrity women, get. And it's like that's really great that like they're they feel comfortable that they're in a place where they can talk about these things that have happened. They shouldn't have ever happened, but at least they're, we're airing them out now and it's sort of taking part in a social sort of shift or hopefully it will and, and we continue to. Um, but, but then knowing like, <laughs> you know, seeing them get off stage or off camera and it's like, all right, so they certainly don't care about my two sisters, like at all. Like, um, and you know, so, who, you know who comes to mind? Who? Sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, no, Reese Witherspoon. Mm, yeah. She is so outspoken um, about being, working for women in the uh, movie making or TV making yeah. business. And what does she come out with? What's that show? Big Little Lies. How many black people are in that show? So there were none in the, in the. Uh, I mean black women. Oh, right. I don't so, care about yeah, men. So, sorry. So, no, no, no. So I'm just trying to think. There's two seasons. The first season has one sort of tangential. And. A uh, black friend, but she's not really a part and of the group. And who's the actress? And it's and it's uh, it's um, Zoe Kravitz, the lightest of the black skin women. And then in the second, it's like spoilers, 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 spoilers. It's not actually, but and then the second season, 
her mom comes on the scene, so it's like the second black character, and she's like magical, and she like can see the future, and has like crystals and like chicken bones and shit right. on a stand next to her bed because she's like a soothsayer. So it's I'm like literally you're I'm doing on, this like magical Negro trope. I'm on the IMDb app, yeah, looking at Big Little Lies, scrolling through the cast, and it's just all white women, it's and it's like powerhouse whiteness, powerhouse cast, right? Sure, like, great actors. But like, but thank you, Reese, for that. Thank you for like lifting up women, right? White women, right? With your show, right? right. Appreciate it, like, right? You're not team women. Your team, white women. Be right. specific with who you support. Right, and is she's a producer, executive producer of that show? Is that her show? Let me look. I think she is. Right. Or before we go blaming her, it's like blame all of the, you know, everyone involved in it, which I assume are white men and Nicole women. Kidman, executive producer. Right. Um, and and Reese Reese, Witherspoon, Reese, executive she producer. She is too. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm sure they all. Thanks, are. guys. Yeah. Neat. Good looking out. Cool. But so that's a great example. Um, so I'm sick of seeing her face on interviews. And when she's about. on the red carpet, using her platform to talk about, hey, I just, like, I'm trying to make a space for women, like, and in my head I'm always saying, white women. Right. Because you're but not making a space like, yeah, for right. all of us. Right. You're not. Right. And that show is, like, so popular, but I refuse to watch it. But Fuck so that, that goes to what, that's why we use the term white supremacy to describe this, because it's the norm, the default is white women. Right. The default is white. So that means that that is viewed as supreme because if everything else is not the norm, is less than the norm, has to be a special case to have an episode about it or a character that's introduced, right. then that's less than the norm, which is white women right. um, and whiteness. And it just is, it is the, it is one of the most like poisonous manifestations of white supremacy is white, femis, white feminism um, because it is, it is the illusion that you're doing good. Right. And it's the illusion that, and you are doing good sometimes. It's like, it's right. just for a certain type of people. White women have been discriminated against in this country. Yes, for sure. Sure. Like that is, they, uh, you know, got the right to vote way after everyone else. Yeah. Oh, and who got way, the right to vote oh, after way. white women? <laughs> right. Yeah. So white women weren't, weren't fighting right. for women to vote. They were fighting for white women to vote. I hate when people say, well, women got the vote in 1920. No, white right. women got the vote right. in 1920. We were still fighting for ourselves because so you didn't 65. speak for us. Yeah, right. And we were still trying to count the number of jelly beans in a jar at the polls. Right, so we could and get quoting our... the Constitution right. front to back so, so I could, could prove that I had the test. wits to vote. Right, exactly. Not only are they, they do they think they're doing good, they are getting praised for doing good and they're being given these interview spots, yeah. which is sent, which is affirmation that like, yes, this is the right thing for being you to be recognized doing. This is for, the, like, yeah, for right. speaking for women they and say. advancing this important cause. Yeah. So since we've given some examples of white feminism and the harms it can cause, and this has been mostly in the context of pop culture, but this is, this, this is, it's the same in any arena. It's the same in, in, uh, you know, academia, in politics, in pay, in right, in in the medical field. It's in, yeah, right. It's it, it, that all. It all is this. You know, but like women make the, seven cents to the dollar for men, but it's like, but black women, right? It's less than that, and Latinas right. is less than that. But yeah, those are the things that your everyday people look to, though. Like right, the heroes of feminism. Right, no, right, you, exactly. You'll say Kesha. It's like what three hundred women were abducted in Nigeria, were kidnapped and taken. Where was Reese? Right. What'd she say about it? Right. I didn't hear anything from her. Right. Maybe when she donated money and didn't say anything. I doubt it. 
But like, because that's not important to her. Because those women aren't important. I think we've pointed out a lot of these examples, and I think it's worth mentioning what actual feminism is. And yeah. I am certainly not going to be the one of the two of us to say what that is. I so. mean, it's very simple. Actual feminism is advancing the lives and rights of all women. So when you mention, when you, when you pick an issue, when you talk about it, take the pay gap. When you talk about how much women make on the dollar to men, talk about all women. Right. Don't make white women the norm. Don't like, just say, this is how much women make on the dollar and use white women's number. You're lying. You're lying to the rest of, on the rest of us because that's not how much I make. I never got that. On the dollar like, to a man. It seems like you'd want to use to make it sound worse. Number. Right. Yeah. It like makes but that's it, how powerful white like, supremacy is. I know. So like we talk about what we, we were just saying, missing women that are, you know, mm-hmm. white women go missing. So like Lacey Peterson and Natalie Holloway, remember oh them? God. Like there's been lifetime them? movies about, you know, um, it's 2002, 2005. Um, you know, th- they were, that was national media attention because mm-hmm. these white women had been either, uh, killed or never made national media, um, like, Latoya Figueroa, for example, mm-hmm. who was a black pregnant woman who disappeared in Philadelphia um, the same year that uh, in, two, in 2005, in the same year that, mm-hmm. that Natalie Holloway did. Yeah. And she is, no, no one listening to this podcast knows, knows who Latoya name. Figueroa right. is. I can guarantee goddamn to you that. Right. You know, and so, it, it, why? Why? Right. Why is that a difference? You know? And like, uh, the missing girls in D.C. Yeah. It was like 14-some right, girls. Right, Um And who spread the word on that? Like Twitter. Right, and right. And Instagram. Right. Because you didn't see it on the news. They right. wouldn't talk about it. So, like, we spread the word. Social media, And yeah. black Twitter, like, was right. out there doing work. Right. But, like, no one else cares. Right. And, like, so... And so that, like, I'm going to be honest. That stuff... It makes it hard for me when something, I'm just going to be real, when something bad happens to a white woman and everyone's freaking out and the whole and news is spreading the word because it is terrible, it makes it hard for me to have compassion and, right. and to feel those those sad feelings for that woman when, when you know, that's it's, of course it's not her fault. Right. It, it doesn't, it shouldn't. I should have compassion for any thing that happened, any person who experiences right. harm. Right. But knowing that the world won't feel those same sad feelings when that bad thing happens to a black woman, it just, yeah, it makes it that much harder for me to, like, feel bad for Kesha. Right. She right. experienced horrible things. Right. Yeah. But it's like, now I don't care. Right, because and I like, know she doesn't care and right, and that's about a, me, and that's a consequence of of white feminism is right. that it's turning away right otherwise gung ho feminists who like it's like I don't want to be a part of your cause, yeah. I don't want to be a part of your you know when in 2017 when when Justine Damon, mm-hmm. this woman was white blonde woman. 
pretty, quote unquote, mm-hmm. um, killed by Muhammad Noor, who was a Somali American police officer. Yep. Um, so she's an unarmed civilian being yep. killed by a police officer. This is like yeah. intersectionality out the ass, right? Yeah. Like this is like he's a black man, he's a police officer, yeah. and she's a white woman that's being killed by police officers. This national. Nationals, oh it was nuts. It was like all the roles were reversed in terms of the people who are usually outspoken about, like, blue lives matter, man. Yeah. Like, cops have this blue job. It's so better. hard. Yeah. And it's like, well, but when a white woman gets killed by a cop, yeah. and oh heaven forbid, goodness. he's a black cop yeah. who is has a foreign-sounding name. His name's Muhammad. Yeah. Foreign-sounding. Oh, he must be Muslim, must be Muslim and a terrorist. Yeah, Noor. It's just like N-O-O-R. Yeah. Like, it's, that sounds Where's like... Where's he from? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the all of a sudden people care about holding police accountable when and they also, kill civilians. And all of a sudden, white women are making a ruckus about unarmed people being killed by cops. And it's like, oh. what were his consequences? The police officer? Right, yeah, no, he was just recently convicted of murder or manslaughter, which, of course, at the time I predicted. I was like, of course, he will. this will be the police officer who is held accountable for shooting an unarmed civilian. Right. It's a black police officer, and it's a, and white, a white blonde woman, woman who, is getting, the, who got killed accidentally. Victim. And he's like, this was an accident. Like, yeah. I didn't... I didn't but right. the police officers that kill black men, unarmed black men, never say it's an accident. Right. They say, I got scared. And I, I thought scared. this is justified because I have... I had to keep him it, in that chokehold until he died because I was afraid for my life. This is fear for my life, right, And exactly. I'm so sad now that I got fired as right. my punishment. Right. And so... Exactly, and we that was part of our <laughs> that was part of our bonus episode recently, which if you have not listened to it, please go back and listen to our sort of rant about the firing of the officer who killed Eric Garner, who choked him to death on the street on camera. Um, he was fired, and that was apparently a big deal and and considered by many to be um, a harsh an punishment of, and an act of justice. And have you seen um, the the officer? Uh, who was fired, had set up a GoFundMe. And oh, my it gosh. Raised, he it raised, raised, like, like $100,000 oh in two gosh, days. Yeah. Um, because he needs it and he's suffering. Because he, Right, exactly. So so that's just an example. Justine Damon is a good example of, of someone who is... That That was a prime example of, of white feminism, white feminists coming out of the woodwork to all of a sudden care about police violence against unarmed civilians, whereas white women hardly ever encounter uh, fatally police at the rates that when compared to the rates of, of young black men um, or just men generally. Um, and I'm not saying that like, oh, men have it so bad, but like this is this is an instance where this was a, a rare, a, a, an oddity, an exception to the rule. And people lost their minds because it's a white woman. And, and she's this beautiful. And they kept describing her as this beautiful white woman. And it's like, right. why are we talking about her well, how, physical appearance, like. why appearance is at all? When's the last time we talked about that right. when someone was killed by police? You know, like, yeah. um, no one said how so, beautiful yeah. Sandra Bland was <laughs> right. when they were describing her in the media. Beautiful Sandra Bland killed. All right. No one said that. Muhammad Noor got sentenced to 12 and a half years. Side note, like in all of the like headlines, it's like Somali American police officer. Right. Not just like, it's American just, Amer- he just is an American officer. citizen. Like he's not. I don't understand oh my God. Why he has to like, you know, like um, it's never 12 like twelve and a half years in jail to getting fired. That's how much Black lives are worth. That's how important white life, white women's lives are. And this one wasn't on video. This one, right. this is we we have a video of the dude choking out Eric Gardner. Right, Eric Gardner, um, and dragging Sandra Bland from her car. Her right. screaming. Right. Oh, exactly. Right. Yeah. 
No, she knows her rights. She is right. like beautiful you know, Sandra Bland. No, no one said that. Vicious, right. violent, aggressive woman won't comply so, with police. And so this is the problem with white feminism because it is it's as you can hear very complicated and very there's examples like crazy but it is it is um it's so connected to the it it, it it's failings are so easily seen if you just look for them if you just look for right. comparable comparable you know um examples of of other instances where non-white women have had very similar things happen to them or people who are not you know, yeah, who who are the same abusers abusing other types of people who are not white women. Um, they're not, it just isn't a thing that people care about. I maintain, and this is controversial, I maintain that if, let's just go to, like, imaginary world, right? Like, completely hypothetical. I love imaginary if world. If Donald Trump had a thing for black women and had 19... Just me chills, I'm sorry. Had 19 black women accused him of sexual assault before the presidency, the Women's March would not have happened after he became president. Probably. The whole, I, I do not think that women would have come out in the way that they did the biggest marches, the biggest protests in this country's history if the victims of these crimes that our new president had, had committed in the past were not white women, not white blonde women, I'll right. even say. His type. His, exactly. And so so that's controversial, sure. But I stand by that sentiment because I believe it was, that was why people freaked out so much about Donald Trump when it related to sexual assaulting mm-hmm. women and violence. It's because it was white women. It right. was these like, quote unquote, beautiful white women who were models and who were mm-hmm. like, you know, and and just trying to make it and just trying to like right. and being abused by him and being in which and they were let's mm-hmm. be that's not I'm not taking away from that they were and those women deserve to be heard but after voting for Donald Trump to the tune of 52% mm-hmm. white women i guess the other the other you know 48% came out in droves after he became president because we had just elected a Serial predator. A serial predator to the White House, I can guarantee you it's because of what the victims look like. And that can be said with so many things. That can be said with, you know, had OJ... Oh, my God. Had OJ's wife been black? Yeah. And and the dude that she was, like, with, uh, Ron Goldman, had yeah. he been black? No one would have given two no, shit. We would not still be making... Th- right. There would not still be uh, Emmy-nominated and Academy Award-nominated films being right. made about O.J. Simpson today right. um, and that trial today. Right. Um, it would not have been national media the way that it was. Yeah. Granted, everyone will say, I can hear it already, it's because he was an athlete. Do yourself no. a favor, go back and Google a bunch of other athletes at the time who were involved in other... Uh, Ray Lewis of the Atlanta Falcons admitted... Pretty much, <laughs> to, he cooperated with uh, with with prosecutors. I'm pretty sure in his role and admitted to his role in a murder. I'm like, I, don't quote me on this, but it's yeah. something very close to this. And he's a commentator on like ESPN, so right. that's not like he is well, not. And like you know, like he had Jean Benet been Ramsey, a cute right. little black girl, right? No one would have cared. In first of all, she wouldn't have been successful in the pageantry pageant shows because, because right, black women are seen as beautiful. That's seen as the right and, the standard is seen as white. Right. And pretty no overtly one would have actually. cared what her parents did to her or didn't do to her. Right. Because no one cares. Right. 
Right. Because black lives don't matter. Like, right. white women's lives matter. Right. A hell of a right. lot. Also, can we talk about Melania? Yeah. It's so, there's a lot going on there. Be best, girl. Part of it is like, you're, how old was she when they were married or dating? I, I do not I'm know. I'm not sure. And this I I'm assume, just, because it's Trump, young. Right. Definitely younger than he, but like, when does it cross the line between, you know, you being groomed by an older man right. to now the platform you have because of that man, you not using it to do anything as a white woman? I don't have the answer to that. So, okay. But so. I think about her often and I'm frustrated by her lack of action or so, lack of literally doing anything. Right. So Talking, she, reading, writing, speaking, anything. So her, the politics affect this for sure of Trump's base um, are not, they are not the Me Too demographic. They are not the... Uh, they are not the social justice demographic. Demographic. They are the pro Kavanaugh demographic. Mm-hmm. They are the pro Trump. Pro, pro these men. women. These women are all out to get Trump demographic. Right. Um, so, not to remove Melania's sort of autonomy um, in this, but I suspect she, even if she wanted to speak out on these issues, it would not be something that made it to daylight. But does she um, want to? Right. So I'm. J- that's just giving her the benefit of the doubt. I right. presume that she does not want to. <laughs> um, because why would I, if the, even the most quote unquote woke white women don't care about black women. So why right. would Melania? Right. You know, like, right. um, so I just don't, that doesn't logically add up for me. Um, but. I just, yeah, I, I go back and forth. Uh, in seeing her as a victim and as part of the problem. I can't imagine being married to a serial predator. Right. And I can only imagine the things that he's done to her. Since we're talking about white feminism, I will continue the conversation about Melania Trump, but I just want to note that it is uncomfortable for me as a man to discuss the inaction and the, uh, the inadequacy of a white woman who is married to someone whom I know to be an abuser, okay, a yeah, sexual predator. Totally. Um, and so just noting that, putting yeah. a pin in that, but like continuing on, <laughs> Melania's trash. Like, so like, she needs to like honestly, not, she needs to like not, this is, she has not shown that she cares about women. Right. At all. Much right. less just white women. Like, yeah, at like, least talk or, about or, white much women. Much less, yeah, like, right. Or much less black women. Them. She, right. So I don't even, that is Trump's, Trump's base and, Politics. He knows he's not going to get any more black voters. He's not going to win over any right. black one. He's just trying to convince black people to not vote not at all. Not vote at all. Um, or take away the right to vote. Right. Um, cool. So I know that Melania is speaking out on behalf of black women when something happens to black women or something happens to a black woman or, or a woman of color as a feminist speaking out in that regard is not on brand with their messaging, which is wild that there's a whole political party whose brand that is not on because the people who support that party do not believe that women have it worse in this country at all, much less that black and brown women have it worse than white women. Right. Um, And so, uh, you know, 
I'm someone who I try to give when I'm relating to and criticizing women's actions or inactions, I try to remember just that like, no, like you're I, doing such as a man. I'm doing such as a man. Mm-hmm. It, no, exactly. Yeah. And, and, but also like I, part of feminism, I think is that women need to be respected as autonomous beings. Right. That so have like, their own, like, you know, that's it. Like say what you will about like, it's like, I'll get a lot of shit for this. You know, Kellyanne Conway, who is a legit, mm-hmm. it was the, one of the spokespeople for the president, is Works one of the, the worst people yeah. on the planet, I would yeah. say. But, like, vehemently disagrees with her husband about their yeah. politics. Yeah. Uh, George Conway is an outspoken, he's a lawyer in D.C., and he's an right. outspoken um, anti-Trump person. Right. And she's his, one of Trump's top people and most loyal. And so... Say what you will about her. She's being autonomous. She is right. she is sticking to her guns and yeah. not letting her husband like dictate her life, which right. is great. And, and I if think I a, did respect her, that's that those be, are props I would give her. Exactly, right. Yeah. But again, garbage human. She's so a, like yeah, I can't she's just, just like, trash. Give. Just <laughs> just, tr- just a trash can. A can of trash. Yeah, so right. So but I just try to remember that women are that I that I try to I try to oops uh to ascribe autonomy in the way right. that I'm making these judgments because I want that to be, that's the goal. Right, you know? but on like, top of that, but it's like Melania. she is living and has been married to for years uh, an abuser, uh, an admitted predator. I, I don't, what goes on in their private lives? I, that's something what that I is, can't you imagine. Know, I can't, uh, how much autonomy does she have? Has he been grooming her for however many years they've been together to not to, you know, unlearn that she's a human with rights and opinions? I just don't know. And that's really, really scary. So part of me is like feels the most bad for her in that in how in such how close proximity she is to this predator. Mm -hmm. But the other part of me is like, I don't know if that is. I don't know if that is true, if she does feel that way, as if she doesn't have a voice and isn't autonomous. And if she doesn't, shame on you, Melania, for not doing one damn thing for anyone in the world. You are the first lady of the most powerful country in the world. Well, for now, maybe. And you haven't done anything with your platform. You've helped no one. You've caused no change. Shame. Right. Like, yeah. just loads of shame. Yeah, like the... On in, your shoulders. In Game of Thrones, when they're just like yelling sh- shame at Cersei shame. over and over again. Shame. Like, like, that's what I want to yell to Milani yeah. in that fashion. <laughs> I'm like, so torn at feeling so horrible for her and hating her so much. And yeah. I, it's, it's terrible because yeah. all around, it's just bad for her. Either she's this, this just, you know, so mistreated victim by this monster of a man, or she's a monster. Right. Or it's both. Right. And either way, I should have compassion for her, and I'm working on it. Yeah. But, yeah, it's just so freaking convoluted. And, and regardless, she's... She lives with a monster, and I can't imagine what that's like for her and her child. Right. Moral of the story to me for, you know, I, I guess one of the takeaways is this. Like, look, I know 
we have a pretty good understanding of who's listening to this podcast. I know there are white women who are listening to this podcast who... Pissed. Well, yes, of course. Always. That's my whole life. There's right. just people pissed at me. It's like, that's fine. Um, if you talk about race and white supremacy, people are mad at right. you. You know that. Um, there are white women that listen to this podcast who consider themselves feminists, who went to the Women's March, who continue to be involved in, you know... Um, organizing, who volunteer at Planned Parenthood, who uh, donate money to all the right causes as they see them, but do not feel a need to, to use any of their energy or money or time for things that lift up black women. They don't see that as feminism. They see that as probably in their minds, black feminism, mm-hmm. right? Like, which mm-hmm. is a term that has come up now because it, it has to. You have to, We have to call it black feminism when black women are feminists because there are so many white women who are just, who call themselves just plain old feminists who are not just plain old feminists. They're white feminists. They're feminists just for white people. Um, and so I hate that there even needs to be a racial, uh, you know, designation, but that, hello, that's intersectionality. That's right. what that is, you know? And what that says... To me, when when white women talk about feminism and don't include black women, what you're saying is I'm not a woman. I'm a black woman. Right. And the, and which is not seen as important as right. just a woman. And by woman you mean white woman. Right. They don't care about you. Right. They 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 right. Yeah. They don't it's not it is something, and they, and again, the refrain will be, well, I just didn't know. I didn't know. And, I, and it's like, well, make it your job to know. Did you know all the stats no, off of your head about white women when you started right. to think that it was important and led this march and started? No, you educated start, yourself. No, you read and you focused on those issues and you learned about them. So do that. You know how to learn. Don't be stupid. Don't act dumb when it, when people accuse you of being a white feminist. Right. I didn't know. Well, you're 20-something or older. Now it's your responsibility. Right, it's time to, to learn. Yeah, you've we been, give children that right. excuse. They right. didn't know because they're children. Right. If you're an adult and you're able to participate in a march as a fully autonomous adult, that excuse doesn't work anymore. I didn't know. That's bullshit. Shame on you for not knowing. Right. It's This did not enter into your world because you don't care for it, too. you don't care. Right. hate Kesha. <laughs> I know you do. I know you do. I shouldn't have and brought her. I did I bring her up? You, no, you I, did. I might have. You did. That's you. Have. That's my I might you. Have. I brought and up I Taylor, though. I don't want to hate her. I know. I know. We got to work on our mercy. We got to work on giving people grace and mercy, but in the context of speaking out and saying what we believe, and that's why we have this podcast. <laughs> Damn. You know? Yeah. This makes me angry and sad. Kesha makes me sad. Kesha, you make me sad. Girl. I feel bad. <laughs> you make me feel bad. Yeah. It's sad because it's like, well, what? What? Why? You make me feel bad because you speak out for women and you use your platform to speak out for women and you receive praise and you put on these performances and you probably donate a lot of money to places that support women and all of that is understood to be white women. Right. 
and you, I, I just don't. Yeah. I'd almost prefer to her to for her to just say white women. Right. Just say say what you actually who you actually right. care about. Don't why why put up. You and know, it kills me that like. People are gonna ask, well, what is she supposed to do? Anything more <laughs> than just bringing on like what three black women or women of color on stage with you after a shitty performance? Do anything more than that, for right. black women? That would be so, much appreciated. Only because you probably wouldn't have gotten away with bringing on only white women. Like, all right, we right. probably wouldn't have let that happen. But like the fact that you were like, okay, let me include like three or four black women. Everyone's voices are heard here. Do do a little more than that. Right. Do a little more than that. Maybe let one of them perform. Maybe let someone who can sing and who is black perform instead of you performing poorly because you are not talented. (laughs) That's another big part of this for you is that she's just just not talented. Yeah. You're a good songwriter. Your mom was a good song, is a good songwriter. mom? I forget her name, but she she writes great songs. And Kesha writes great songs, but like you can't sing. So maybe give your well-written Wake up songs in the morning to. <laughs> that's lit though. Like that's P. Diddy, I was but, gonna say I love yeah, that. Yeah, maybe give but your yeah. well-written songs to black women to sing, better than you. As a way to be a feminist, right? Literally, let like, a black woman on stage. Give her the mic. Don't make her snatch it from you. So that's what was on my mind. You know what? I feel like I have to say all of mine sound angry. Well, you're an angry black woman. I am. <laughs> Proudly. I have a t-shirt that says angry black woman because I'm often very angry and I'm black and I'm a woman. Yeah. Well, so, so like listeners. Yeah, I am angry and I feel like it often comes off that way because it's true. And this shit makes me angry. Welcome back, everyone. We are excited to have with us Tahid Chappelle. Tahid works for the Philadelphia Inquirer. He's also on the executive board of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. Uh, he's also the conference founder of PHL Cannabis, uh, which is a media-led uh, conference about cannabis and activism and cannabis rights. Uh, he's also just a really big, uh, big actor in that space in Philadelphia. So we're excited to have him with us. So Tahid, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So we are really excited to talk to you about the uh, about the cannabis industry as we're seeing it uh, change and sort of transform, um, and also love to get your insight about cannabis generally and the laws as they've been on the books uh, before now. Um, but before all that, I think it'd be helpful to give our listeners a sense of uh, of what you do um, and how you became involved in this area. Yeah, definitely. Um, um, I'm a man of many hats. I wear a lot of hats here in Philadelphia. Uh, My main job is working at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I work on social media and digital strategy. I also sit on the uh, executive board uh, of the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. We are the oldest association of black journalists and the first in the country. Um, that basically we focus on diversifying the media ecosystem with more black and brown media professionals. Um, The third hat that I wear is I'm a patient advisor at a local uh, Philadelphia dispensary called Herbology. And then the fourth hat that I wear is um, I was a founder of the Color of Cannabis Conference, conference, which was through uh, PABJ, um, which is the Philadelphia Association of Black Journalists. And that conference 
focused on basically helping uh, the Philadelphia community understand uh, medical marijuana, help them understand the history of cannabis, and help them understand how legalization could impact their communities um, and why they should be interested in learning more about cannabis legalization, the history of the plant, and how they can get involved. Um, I got involved in terms of just the cannabis space in general um, because I am a medical marijuana patient. I suffer from a chronic condition called ulcerative colitis, um, which is similar uh, to Crohn's disease. Um, it's under the irritable bowel disease um, umbrella. I was diagnosed with that in 2008, but I didn't really understand the merits of cannabis as, as medicine uh, until 2012 when I first moved to Arizona. And by then, Arizona had already had a medical marijuana program up and running. And a mm. colleague of mine at the time had told me, oh, you know you qualify for a green card. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and he said, your condition is one of the conditions that qualifies you for medical marijuana. And, you know, I smoked cannabis in college recreationally. I didn't really understand. I was using it for, for, for uh, medicine. I didn't understand its benefits. But I, I definitely smoked a lot of it in college. Um, and I was very giddy. I was like, oh, I can get this. Isn't this illegal federally? And he said, well, technically, yes, but the state has deemed it legal and the federal government isn't doing anything right now. So, you know, if you want to get it, you can get it and buy it here legally. And so I was all giddy. I was like, I can smoke cannabis uh, <laughs> legally here. Like I'm set for life. You know, my condition, my condition is very debilitating at times. Uh, I do have to manage stress, which is my trigger. Um, I'm very lucky that my symptoms aren't as severe as other people. I've only had to go to the hospital once, um, but you know, the silver lining now for me after 2012 is that I get to have cannabis legally and be okay. So that was my first introduction. Uh, and that was in 2012. I moved around the country a little bit. I've worked in California. Um, I worked in uh, my previous before Philadelphia, I worked in DC and now I'm here in Philadelphia. So I've been able to experience different States where cannabis was legal, um, in various aspects. And so that's what got me really interested in understanding cannabis as a medicine. Um, and that's how I kind of, you know, got more involved in understanding cannabis and the history of it as well. So that's where uh, I currently am uh, right now. Cool. So, and just to be clear, so you live in, in Philadelphia here, the same as we do. Um, Pennsylvania, it, recreational marijuana is still illegal albeit relatively decriminalized within Philadelphia, uh, but medical marijuana is legalized in Pennsylvania, correct? Correct, correct. Mar medical marijuana was enacted into law in, I believe, 2016, and then the program itself has only been up and running for the last year. Wow, that's so recent. Right, I was going to say, and Even... I asked that as if I didn't know. I, I am a medical marijuana, uh, medical cannabis patient here in Pennsylvania as well, and was in Massachusetts as well, so I can relate to, to what you're talking about, although I had never smoked it before. Yeah. Um, but it, it's so crazy, so recent. It's yeah. yeah, it's just so wild that we're even having this conversation. I mean, one, I never thought it would happen, um, but places like um, Herbology Dispensary are unimaginable to some people um, who, you know, grew up when marijuana was illegal, just flat done. It's, it's illegal. Um, but can you, can you provide our listeners with a bit of history on the laws and mention how that, how that, uh, interacts with the war on drugs and, and how that was affected by it? Yeah. So in the very, very, very short, um, time frame that I'll give you, um, marijuana cannabis is, is more the appropriate term. Um, but cannabis was technically made 
illegal at the federal level back during the um, Nixon era. Uh, that's when the war on drugs really became the um, major hit. Um, when it was put on as a Schedule One narcotic, um, it was deemed that it had no medical value. It was deemed that it was a, um, a drug that had a high probability of abuse, and therefore it was deemed as a narcotic that um, could have the highest amount of, um, of prosecution and, and penalties uh, given upon a person who possessed, um, consumed, distributed, etc., and, and just to be clear, a Schedule One drug for our listeners who don't know is that's that's the same group that you know heroin, mm -hmm. uh, you know PCP, all those all those the top most dangerous drugs you can think of that are illegal are Schedule One drugs, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I believe, and you might have to double check on this, but I believe like morphine and cocaine are not. I believe that that may be a Schedule Two, because actually cocaine was used in, in different medicines back in the day, and morphine right. is also still used as, as medicine as well. So those were actually, um, as far as I remember, deemed a Schedule Two. So they have opportunities. Um, but one thing that being a Schedule One narcotic means that you can't have any resources to research it. There's no federal money that goes into research unless it's deemed um, appropriate through uh, various. Um, agencies, mostly the DEA. Um, but the history of it, the, the most recent one that people like to point to is really 1968. And it's during the Nixon and the Reagan years, really, where the war on drugs became targeted. Um, that's where you had a lot of um, influence from the DEA. The, um, the DEA was doing a lot of enforcement across the states, busting all of these marijuana growers, um, really invading a lot of uh, houses where predominantly black and brown people lived. A lot of black and brown communities were decimated by the war on drugs. This was the, the opportunity for the federal government to really make money off of um, imprisoning people because of this plant, a plant that had been in the uh, American pharmacopoeia um, up until I think even as far as, as far as I know, maybe 1868 or a little bit after that, cannabis was actually in the American pharmacopoeia as a listed medicine. Doctors used to prescribe cannabis um, before it was deemed a, uh, a narcotic. There's all of this, wow. um, there's all of this data and all of this research um, predating 1968 that has shown that cannabis is, um, is useful as a medicine, that it does help relieve a whole bunch of symptoms. Um, but it really became a target, a, a way for the government to target black and brown communities. It was a way for them to target uh, anti-war protesters who you know, were deemed quote unquote hippies who smoked a lot of cannabis. It was also aimed uh, at people who were using cannabis as medicine as a last resort. A lot of patients who were suffering from HIV AIDS when we had the AIDS mm. epidemic were targeted from, uh, for using cannabis to help uh, relieve the wasting syndrome that they had, to help them give them an appetite. So a lot of those patients were also incarcerated too. So it was a, it was a multi-pronged attack um, against people um, with, no, with no data, with no sort of information that actually validated uh, any sort of claims that the government was issuing um, against it. And so, obviously, those laws have changed over time. So, in my lifetime, obviously, I've I've seen a a, a big change um, in how in how cannabis is viewed by your your everyday person. But would you call this change fast, or is this as compared to other drugs and how they're viewed by the law and society? Are these changes relatively normal? 
to me, it seems really fast. Like overnight, basically, we're thinking about cannabis differently. Do you see it the same way? It's it's accelerating. It's certainly accelerating. And it's certainly accelerated after 2012 when um, Denver, when you had Colorado, Alaska, Washington, Oregon, um, California, I think, um, all decide to legalize for recreation. Um, medical marijuana was legalized in the first in, in California in 96. So when that state was able to rec, uh, legalize medicinally, you had other states starting to um, legalize for medical purposes. And that was a slow but also um, observed growth in states that were legalizing medically. But, you know, the, the programs that were set up were only for patients with specific, almost like life-threatening or life-ending um, conditions. HIV AIDS, for example, was a big one. If you had HIV AIDS in a lot of states, you were able to get medical marijuana um, as, as, as a qualifying um, medicine. But really, the acceleration happened when 2012 came in and adult use became um, um, an open opportunity for more businesses, for more industry people to actually explore how does cannabis as a legal, um, quote-unquote, drug um, actually impact communities. And so, um, I, I would say, you know, it's only going to get faster. We're, o- we're already seeing federal committees have these hearings about cannabis legalization, about banking, um, and, and about the war on drugs now too. So it's only going to get faster and working as a part-timer in the industry. You see that I see that at the ground level. Um, so it's, it's, it's not going to slow down. It's definitely not going to slow down at all. What have you seen, uh, sort of on the ground as it relates to the sort of acceptability of of cannabis socially. So it seems like you know when we mention cannabis to people who are um, older than we are. So I think Boomers. I'm thinking like our parents' age, yeah, baby boomer age. It is very taboo still. It is very much like that is a drug, drug, drug. It like, still is like heroin is and, it, right. and is you it, know, sorry, cocaine. Sure being safe if you're smoking it or you're sure you're being, you know. Um, are you seeing that change, that sort of mindset about how acceptable it is to to be someone who consumes this this substance? Senior citizens are the fast and growing demographic that are consuming cannabis. That's amazing. <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, I have a lot of seniors come in who, you know, are just like, like, like you mentioned, just so shocked that they can do this. So right. shocked that they, they actually have the opportunity to even purchase it like this. Now, you know, it, it, you know, not getting too wonky, but, you know, the, the cannabis that is being sold right now is a little bit expensive because of the supply, the demand, right. the regulations, the restrictions. But they're just happy that they can go in and get it without having to buy it from from a dealer that they don't know where it's coming from. They don't know the quantity, the quality, et cetera. So senior citizens, you get two different groups. You get one group, um, two different groups that I've experienced. You get the one group that's all sort of giddy and happy and used to, you know, they would tell stories about how they used to just like former you know, hippies. You know, yeah. So, yeah. You know. <laughs> and then you get the other group that are like very like cautious, very, very like they want to stay on the DL. They want to make sure that no one knows that they're buying. They want to make sure that like they, they are very cautious and still very hesitant. But the fact that they have their card means that they're aware that there are benefits to it. And a lot of senior citizens right. are now getting their cards or at least trying cannabis um, for the first time because they realize that they're in pain, that they're suffering. And now that there's more data and more research coming out that there's that cannabis can help alleviate a lot of these symptoms, not cure. Um, we don't want to say cure, but help alleviate and mitigate some of this pain. 
they're signing themselves up. They're realizing that the opioids that they've been given for decades are not working or that has made them in, in a state where they don't feel like they're functional, that they're themselves. And cannabis doesn't give them that type of feeling. So a lot of these uh, older patients are like, I want to move off my hard, these hard opiates. I don't want to use these anymore. Now they're actually seeing the light that, oh, cannabis is actually something that you um, have a very low chance of getting addicted to whatsoever. So now that, you know, these dispensaries are opening up all over the country, do you feel that you have, that you're a part of a, a larger group of black people who are being represented in this business? Uh, I think I have, I'm, I'm very lucky and very privileged to be in this position because, um, there are people like me certainly who are able to benefit from this, um, you know, job creation, um, working with patients, educating, being interviewed, for example, I'm definitely benefiting from it, but we're not seeing at least personally for me and in the way that I'm seeing it in different markets, not everyone is benefiting. For example, we'll, we'll, we'll bring it back to Pennsylvania. It is a pay to participate system, the way that the, the, the medical marijuana program is set up, you have to spend more than at least more than a hundred dollars to get your card. You have to go to a doctor, you have to get recommended. Those recommendations are not covered by insurance. A lot of doctors will charge anywhere from a hundred to $250 to get a recommendation. Some doctors will actually, you know, put it as a, just a regular doctor's visit. And if you have insurance, you know, you pay your copay and whatnot. But many of them are, are, are asking patients um, to, to pay a, a lot of money. And then on top of that, you have to pay $50 for the card. And if you're able to prove that you are, uh, you, you are on any sort of state assistance or federal assistance programs, that you'll be able to get a discount off of that card. But it's still a very, very, you know, a large amount of money for a lot of people. Again, Philadelphia specifically has 26% poverty rate. So you can only imagine in a city that has between 1.2 to 1.5 million people, how many people are in poverty, how many people are able, able to afford getting into the program on top of having to buy their actual medicine, which is still quite expensive too. So um, I think there is progress that's being made. Um, I think that's why there's also the argument to help legalize it for adult use so it opens up access to people so they don't have to necessarily get their cards and go through this process of having to spend more money just to have access to it. So I see that from a, um, from a medical marijuana perspective. Um, it's, it's definitely better, but there's way more work that we need to do to open up access and make this um, uh, more economically viable for the families and for the people who, who can't otherwise afford it. So... I know the, I feel like I know the answer to this question before I even ask it, but in terms of who owns these dispensaries and who is profiting from the, oh, you know, this answer, the further legalization of recreational marijuana, but then also in certain states, medical, I know that it's not anywhere near proportionate to, to how black people were locked up for the, for consuming and possessing this plant. I know it's not anything close to making amends for that in terms of, you know, I can imagine programs where we're making sure that like new black entrepreneurs are being given sort of, you know, preference here or or at least some support here uh, in this kind of booming industry. I know a bunch of the presidential candidates have that in their plans, but what are you seeing in terms of who owns these um, these companies and who are, who, who are benefiting from them? Majority white old white male capitalist, without a doubt. This is a pay-to-participate system in every aspect of it, from the consumers to the people who own it. 
in in Pennsylvania specifically, you needed at least more than three hundred thousand um, dollars, or maybe even two hundred thousand dollars, just to have a standing chance to apply for a license for a grower processor wow. um, license. Right, that's a lot of money. And if you don't have the capital, if you don't have the the uh, the the amount of money to move. Um, then you're not going to be able to even apply for a license. The, the amount of money that you need in different markets, you know, in California, you need millions just to even have a fighting chance to be considered for a license. And a lot of that money is not given back after you, after you submit your application. Um, so a lot of these people, again, given the fact that, you know, in a capitalist society has always benefited white men, uh, those are the people at the top who tend to own these dispensaries and these grower processors as well. And even the labs too. Um, there's very little minority owned, um, dispensaries and, and, um, grower processors in the country. In fact, uh, marijuana business daily came out with their 2017, uh, minority and women report that looked at kind of the demographics of who owns and who's an executive leadership, um, uh, based off of their survey. And they came out with another report in 2019 as well. That kind of looked at the landscape of ownership uh, in, in, in terms of minorities and, and female-led uh, businesses um, with a specific look at Ohio and Massachusetts, too. And, and they broke down some of the, some of the, um, the differences in, in ownership as well. But predominantly, you're not seeing much color. You're not, much, you're not seeing much diversity. And, and the sad part is a lot of these uh, people who are applying for applications in new markets for a dispensary or grow a processor – um, sometimes they will add a person of color as a uh, hmm. co-owner or, or someone on the application so that they can give themselves some boost and say, hey, look, we have diversity. Hey, look, Token. we have this person. Yeah, exactly. Tokenizing us. So, um, no, you know the answer to this. It's still a very white industry. It will continue to be a white industry until there's more capital and more money that's made available. And until the, the, the threshold is significantly lowered to where people have a standing chance to even compete. And I, yeah, I was going to ask you, so what can we do to change that? But that you just sort of answered it there. It had those sort of economic changes or market changes have to happen. And in large part, it sounds like that's going to come from the further sort of loosening of these laws and legalizing these laws and sort of getting organizations and nonprofits, I'm thinking, behind these like initiatives to give, to set up, you know, support and assistance for folks who do want to be able to get a part of this business, but don't have the sort of upfront, uh, you know, the mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars. It takes millions in some places to get started. So, okay. Yep. Well, you know, if it weren't for your medical needs, would you have any sense of wanting to remove yourself from this new booming business because of the inequality? Or is that, do you feel like that's going against it's doing a disservice to the black and brown people in the industry already. Do you feel like just by your presence alone participating in the industry that that will help? Or do you think people, you know, who say, screw this, I'm boycotting or protesting against this because I don't see myself represented. Do you think both sides have a, have a something to stand on? I think I think removing yourself because of frustration isn't surprising, and I certainly don't blame people who feel like it's impossible. But you're not helping anybody, and you're certainly not helping your position yourself if you're just going to sit on the sidelines and not get involved. 
that's the last thing that's going to help anybody is by removing yourself. Um, because that means no one's going to be arguing for you. No one's going to be talking for you and you can't expect other people to do that for you and, and benefit from that too. But there's a lot of frustration and I, and I, and I can see that. And I, and I hear that in a lot of the people that I talk to, that's like, what's the point? The system is rigged. Well, that doesn't mean that we can't stop fighting. You know, back in the day when, when black people don't have any voting rights, did you, are we, did we all collectively just sit out? No, people gathered, they organized, they mobilized, and, and, and they pressured right people, and they moved, and they got things done. And we have to keep doing that. Um, you know, I, I think uh, understanding the injustice that the war on drugs has brought, understanding the fact that it was all a lie that the government made up to just incarcerate black and brown people and decimate our communities— it would be an injustice for me to stand back and say, you know what, I'm not going to participate knowing the injustices that continue to happen. Having this knowledge and choosing not to do anything with, with that is an injustice of itself. And it's ignorant for me to think that I can you know, not play a part in this and think that things are going to go in the right direction that they should be going. That's not mm -hmm. right. In my position and power and influence and agency, I'm going to do everything that I can just to educate people. You know, there are going to be ways, um, there are definitely pros and cons to legalization, and we need to address those things. And that's why having these types of dialogues and looking at things in other markets that what's working, what's not, and having those hard discussions of how do we make this um, uh, a most equitable, ethical, and um, equal type of opportunity for people, regardless if you want to work in the industry, regardless if you want to own a dispensary or grow a processor, regardless if you want to build an ancillary business um, that is adjacent um, to cannabis, how can we make this um, equal to people? And also, how can we start undoing or at least repairing and and um, amend or mending some of the, the the damage that we've caused over these generations? Um, I don't see myself removing myself whatsoever, no matter what the frustrations are. I see all these other activists. I see all these other educators um, working as hard as they can to to do the best. Because at the end of the day, we only really have one shot. Um, before these laws are created and really sealed. And it's very hard to, to, to change a law when it becomes a law. And so it, it, it's imperative for all of us who understand that this is bigger than us, that this is just this is bigger than me getting this for my resume. This is bigger than me being able to say that, oh, I work in cannabis. This is me being able to understand that there are so many injustices that have been um, laid upon our people um, that it's 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 an injustice for me not to want to be a part of this and help right some of these wrongs for people who can't even do that themselves. Mm. So I want to, I want to ask you, so from a personal standpoint, um, as a black man, um, you know, and I, I can't think of a way to say, a way to phrase this other than just to sound like a concerned parent, but are you, <laughs> are you nervous that you'll get, caught up in some bullshit are you nervous that you're going to get caught up in some in, in terms of legal and criminal uh procedure that you'll get that all of this de dealing so much with cannabis and with uh, with that industry is just you're just opening yourself up to be harassed by police to be have to prove you know that you're a legal user of cannabis to have to you know um they you know, see something in your car and they use that to search your whole car. I just have all these nightmare scenarios um, of all the ways that I interact with police. And I feel like this, this makes it worse. Do you feel that way? Or can you speak to that? Uh, I'm not worried at all. in, in mm. my regards, I think being a black male in this society, we're already a threat and already a danger. 
So mm. what is adding a plant going to do anything to do differently? You know, for me, I, I, but I don't, I mean, that. in terms of, I mean, in terms of your, the risk to your own sort of safety and legal, uh, you know, jeopardy of, you know, if you have, say you have you know, cannabis on you, but not your, your license to smoke it or to use it medically on you and you get stopped by cops and they find this and you have to prove to them that you are able to legally own this. Yeah. Um, that could involve a trip to the station and a trip to the, you know, or your car being searched or your, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't make you nervous at all. I mean, at the end of the day, when I tell patients is to uh, always make sure you have the right credentials on you. That's the best that you can yeah. do. And, and, you know, it's, it's on me if I'm caught without my credentials. That's on me. Um, it's unfortunate that we still live in a society where you have to be scared of that. It's right. I was going to say, it's on them. Yeah. yeah but at the, at the end of the day, you know, this program yeah. is what it is right now. And yeah. We are forced to work in the confines of it. But that's why, you know, talking and educating and working with other agencies, especially, you know, police agencies to figure out what is the best way to ensure that patients or anyone who lives in a, um, in a uh, area where it's legal, um, that they're not being prosecuted, that they're not being targeted. And that's a very hard, that's a lot, that's a very, very tough thing to fight for. But, you know, at the end of the day, we have to work within the rules and regulations that we are uh, under. And we always tell patients, always have your card on you, always have your documents, always make sure you have your labels on you. Don't, you know, don't keep it out in the open in the car. You know, if you need to hide it and put it in the glove box, put it, put it in the trunk, you know, just make sure that to do whatever you need to do to ensure that you don't have to be or put yourself in that situation. Um, I'm not worried myself personally. Um, just because, uh, you know, it's not that I'm actually like, you know, running a business. It's not right. that I'm trying to move cash from cannabis, a cannabis dispensary into my bank account. That's way more worrisome there. Bank mm -hmm. accounts get shut down as soon as they know that you're working in the cannabis space. Um, you know, I don't, I don't have to worry about that. Um, I don't see myself personally as someone who is running around smoking a blunt and blowing it in an officer's uh, face. Right, I'm not going right, right. to keep it. I'm going to also keep it discreet. But I also know my rights. Um, and so, you know, if, if that ever happens, then I have to be ready for it. Yeah, yeah that's just, true. Yeah, it's, Know your rights. We yeah. tell patients, know your rights. I yeah. Know, and for me, it's just so, I mean, these laws are so new and police have so much discretion with what laws they choose to enforce and how that it just makes me, as, as I'll speak to my own experience, it makes me nervous um, even though I'm not doing anything wrong, even though I'm not or illegal. Um, and and it I don't just, blame you. Yeah. It's just one of those things which is so wild and it could just be my personal experience with police. But um, yeah, it is. Yeah, just you definitely don't have to be breaking the law to be arrested. Right. So, right. I mean, it's true. Right. It's true. Yeah. yeah. I didn't know they try to get us for anything. So. All right. right. It's true. So in a in a uh, more macro sense, what are the big things you want people to know about cannabis in general, about uh the industry at large, because this is relatively new still on people's minds, the, the legality of it, what are what are some of the, the big facts that you want to let people in on? Cannabis legalization is no longer a question of if, it's a question of when and how it's going to happen in your state if it's no if it's not legalized yet. It is it is a is it's a wave that's coming that is is impending. There's nothing that's going to stop it at this point. So I tell people to educate yourselves, start reading, look at, I, I give a bunch of book recommendations because that's how I got um, really involved in it because I started reading about the history of it. 
And I started reading about all the research that was available that was cited in these books. Um, a lot of good books are out there that really help open your eyes and see that, oh, wow, this was completely false. What we've learned in D.A.R.E. class was completely false. Um, that, that, you know, I still remember the song, though. Yeah, you that know, was a like, good song. Like, the indoctrination is real. But when you are able to kind of look at it and see all the research and all the facts that have existed, here's the thing. The, the facts have already existed. They've been existed. They've already existed. But they've never really been accessible to this degree until, you know, the age of the Internet where you're able to search things. Now people are able to pull up all this type of research that used to be, you know, available but kind of hidden. And now they're able to look that up, too. So I, I'm, I'm telling people that the big facts are um, it's 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 going to happen in your state if it hasn't happened already. Um, you can always play a role in talking about cannabis if you are a medical marijuana patient, if you have been hurt by the war on drugs, if you know a family member or a friend, someone in your network who's been hurt by the war on drugs or uses cannabis, you can be involved too. And it's never too late to start educating yourself on it because the more educated you are, the, the better you are to argue as to why um, things should be equitable, why things should be equitable and ethical, and why reparations need to be um, in place for communities that have been decimated by the war on drugs. We know at the federal level, people are talking about the banking issue. Um, right. We know at the federal level, they're talking about you know the Marijuana Justice Act or the States Act. We know that you know they had a hearing, the Federal Judiciary Committee uh, just had a hearing recently in the last couple of weeks about uh, cannabis in the war on drugs and ways to address the inequities in, in, in terms of arrest, in terms of um, legalization and all that. So it's moving. It's happening. And, you know, those who may be interested in it, I always encourage them just to read up about it. And medical marijuana in of itself is a good way to open the door into this, this conversation because it's really talking about addressing pain. It's really talking about addressing a bunch of ailments that have uh, shown that cannabis can actually help with some of these um, conditions too. So, uh, you know, talking to people about the therapeutic and the medical use of it is very easier conversation because they're like, oh, I didn't know. Oh, wow. I didn't think about that. Or, oh, I have a relative spouse right. myself who's suffering from this. Maybe I should talk about it or maybe I should look into it. And opening the curiosity at that level really starts maybe making people think about it and doing their own research, too. So, you know, it's happening. Um, Canada's already legalized it. Mexico is already pushing to legalize it. Uruguay's already legalized it. Like it's, it's a global economy that's just only going to grow bigger. So it's better to start reading up on it now. Um, and preparing rather than rather than kind of sitting on the sidelines and, and, and wondering what's going on. So, and this is a question that we want, we ask everyone who comes on this podcast and it is, you know, as you know, this podcast is about race and what white people can do to help fix our system generally. So what can white people specifically who are looking to, to bring about racial equity in this country as a whole, but who might be involved in this industry or who might be, have an interest in it, like you were just describing, what can they do from a racial perspective um, using their race um, to to help make this a more equitable market and a more equitable system as it as it relates to race. Um, so bearing in mind how much, you know, how much pain and how many lives are ruined by the war on drugs, um, black and brown lives, you know, can we use this medical industry as a, or this medical uh, cannabis industry as a, a, you know, a way to sort of make amends? Um, yeah, that's that's a few questions, but yeah, basically, what 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 can what can folks looking to help from a racial standpoint do do here? 
first, I'd recommend a couple books so that they can become a little bit more conscious about themselves. A couple books I would recommend are New Jim Crow, Marijuana Reconsidered, Smoke Signals, So You Want to Talk About Race, White Fragility. Good couple of books okay. that'll give you give you some understanding of cannabis and then what it means to be white in, in American society. Second place or second thing is to show up. Show up to these community hearings. Find out where these cannabis um, events are happening. Talk to community leaders who are involved in cannabis. Figure out what are their needs. What can they what do they need help with? What resources can you bring to the table and provide? Third is put people of color in spaces. Bring them to spaces, elevate their, their voices, amplify their messages, be the hype man, to be quite clear, be the hype man, mm. um, hype them up and promote them and, and, and give them opportunities that will help push the cause forward. And, you know, at the end of the day is know your position of power and influence. If you know that there are specific people that could help the cause with resourcing, um, whether that's as little as volunteering for a weekend on a some sort of cannabis event or whether that means showing up to a local town committee hearing and taking notes for people or video recording on Facebook Live um, for people who can't uh, be there. Know mm -hmm. what you can do to bring that extra pair of hands um, or extra network that is able to support uh, the causes that you see happening in your community. Um, but what we sometimes see is that people like to kind of have that white savior uh, a complex happen where they think that they know enough where they can kind of argue and, and say those points. No, take a step back and really elevate a person of color um, who, who normally wouldn't have that opportunity to step up to the stage or to the mic and make sure that they are seen, that they are given the exposure and that ultimately that they um, are supported um, throughout this entire legalization movement because not enough of that is happening. Um, and, and I think that goes with just a whole bunch of things, but, you know, helping white people understand their consciousness and their privilege in the society is a very good first step. So I hope I, you know, anyone who's listening to this, who's white, I definitely recommend you read those books, um, because that will help you understand your position in this. Well, this has been fascinating and illuminating. Uh, so sure. Tahi, thank you so much. For taking the time to speak with us thank you for having me on this um i really appreciate what you guys are doing um this is a space that we have an opportunity to right a lot of wrongs and i wasn't talking like this a couple of years ago to be honest i wasn't i wasn't even aware i was very ignorant about my myself being a medical marijuana patient my understanding of cannabis as medicine um what what legalization meant for black and brown communities um, as well. And I didn't understand a lot of this until I started reading and learning and, and connecting with people online and seeing how other movements were happening. So, um, you know, it's never too late. It's never too late to feel like you can be a part of this. It's never too late to just educate people so that they're curious about this. So um, I really appreciate you guys giving me the space to even talk about this. Of course. Thank you so much, Tahid. Welcome back, everyone. So now it is time for our action item for this episode. April, what do you got? This episode, I'd like to encourage white people to do something they may find strange. Um, but my action item is when you see the police encounter a black person, pulling them over, you know, on the side of the road, 
um, stopping them in the streets, knocking on people's uh, front doors. Anytime you see a police officer detaining a black person, stop and observe. Be a presence there. Pull your car over on the side of the road. Stop on the street. Um, stop in front of that person's house and watch like a guard dog. Why? And to what end? Be the person that if something goes down that you see as a violation of that person's rights, be the witness. And when it comes time, speak up. Share what you saw with whomever will listen. Share with law enforcement, share on social media, share with your friends and family, tell them what you saw, tell them why it was wrong, videotape it, have everyone you in your life watch it. And I've talked to you about this before, Jonathan, and your experience with being detained by the police, however many times that's happened. Just your presence alone as a white person is a deterrent. Cops are less likely to violate the rights of a person of color who's been detained when white people are present and watching and serving as witnesses to the to the interaction totally so even you don't have to do anything just stop and be there and if something does go down that you know you you see as a violation of rights then you can you can act but this action item is simple you see something stop and be a presence there and observe. This episode of Black Anne was written and produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins, and was edited by me. Our theme music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's the number five, fifthchildmusic.com. Black Hand is available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, tell your friends about us. It really helps us out. 